This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Happy 2017! Happy New Year, Jackie! How are things going over there on your end? Oh, things are great. It's finally vacation, and I could not be more thrilled. <laughs> How are you? How's your break? Very good as well. Enjoying the time off. And we had talked about discussing on this podcast New Year's resolutions. So had you given any thought to yours and what goals you're going to set for the upcoming year? Yes. And... So mine is going to be a little bit vague, and I did that on purpose because I want it to last throughout the whole year. So I'm trying to make it big and open so that I will have the follow-through to stick to it. But here it is. Um, I resolve to every day invest in my musical self in some way because I know that during the semester and during the school year, I tend to let that be less of a priority in favor of other people's priorities and other people's needs. And I know that is part of my job being a teacher. And I I love that part of my job. But sometimes I feel a little bit musically depleted. So Mm -hmm. my investment in my own musical self is going to have to be a priority every day. And that could be a wide range of things. Um, It could be making three blanks. It could be a morning warm up. It could be physical activity, like taking a quick jog or a walk around campus, uh, or maybe even biking to work because I don't live that far from where I work. I could feasibly bike, but I don't. (laughs) And, um, my, and really prioritizing my personal practice schedule and treating it like a commitment that cannot be moved. Um, because I don't know about you or maybe other people listening, but it's practicing can be the thing because it's flexible. You know, it could happen at any point during the day. Um, Mm -hmm. it's the, it's the thing that tends to be thrown away first in favor of things that other people need. So that's my, that's my new year's resolution is to be more responsible to my own musical health. No, that's so good. And I completely relate to that. I'm a very task driven person. I'm a very list driven person. And so for me, the appeal of getting something off of the list can be such a higher priority than, like you said, these more flexible things. It can be so enticing to be like, no, I'm just going to grade those papers instead of uh, practice in this extra 15 minutes that I have. I, I think it's a great resolution. Oh, yeah. And then, oh, I relate to that so much. <laughs> that, <laughs> that extra 15 minutes where you're like, well, I could practice or I could check my email. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and email for me is the worst. Yeah, absolutely. What is yours? My resolution is inspired by Bob Ross. <laughs> Oh, I love Bob Ross. Did you know that I watch him to feel relaxed? I watch his show. Well, this is where the resolution comes in because I, too, realized that Bob Ross, um, The Joy of Painting, is now on Netflix. So I was um, watching The Joy of Painting. I put one on while I was cleaning the kitchen or whatever, uh, just to have something on in the background. And he starts doing this painting and the sky is finished it's beautiful he does a mountain range it's beautiful he does some forest scene in the background and i'm looking at this painting and i'm thinking yeah that's pretty much done like that's a beautiful painting i hang that on my wall good job bob ross and then all of a sudden he goes 
And you know, sometimes you just feel compelled to put an evergreen in the foreground and takes this big black line and puts it down the middle of this beautiful painting. And I literally said out loud, I go, no, you ruined it. (laughs) (laughs) And of course he goes on to take that black line and turn it into a beautiful evergreen tree and, and many on the other side of it and blend it in. And it turns into a painting that has even much more depth and creativity than the painting that I thought was done, but was actually half finished. And this blew my mind and it made me think about all the ways that I'm potentially doing that in other areas of my life. And I thought about how did he do that? You know, how did he take what was a good enough painting and turn it into an excellent painting? And so I started thinking about it and he has to paint a lot to do that. He has to be doing a ton of painting and he has to be comfortable with experimenting and being creative in his painting. He has to be comfortable taking chances and risks. And then furthermore, he has to be comfortable with those risks not yielding a reward. He has to be comfortable with messing up some paintings in order to figuring out what um, improvisations or that type of thing will yield this beautiful result that he was ultimately able to come to. And it made me look inward (laughs) and think about, honestly, how creative am I being in my everyday life and especially in my music making? And, you know, I say to my students all the time, do not be afraid to take that uh, B read and basically don't be so afraid of ruining that B read that you never know what it takes to turn it into an A read. That if you're so afraid of making the read worse, you're never going to figure out what it takes to make consistently excellent A plus reads. And that's going to take ruining some sometimes. And I say that, but how often do I actually do it? You know, how creative am I in the practice room? Or am I just okay, it's technically challenging. I'll start it slow and gradually make it fast. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how, how creative am I being in my classroom? Am I doing that small group exercise that I heard about? Or am I being inventive in my assignment making? Or am I just lather, rinse, repeat for the sake of, like we talked about earlier, getting the thing off the list, checking the box, and getting it done and getting it done fast enough, but I don't always concentrate on how I'm getting it done. And so my resolution is to think more about that process than just final product, final product, final product. And I suspect that in doing that, I'm gonna be a more efficient, creative, effective, and happy bassoonist teacher person. Uh, so that's my resolution is to just um, not focus on what I get done, but how I get it done and place as much emphasis on the process, if not more than the final product, which is going to be a challenge for me. But, <laughs> you know, um, I think it'll be good. That's really cool. That's really cool. And then you're going to feel more cre- like more fulfilled creatively because you're going to be engaging that part of yourself. Yeah. And I think I'm not the most free, spontaneous individual as it stands. And so I think I could... What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I could stand to lighten up a bit sometimes and uh, take some more risks. And, um, you know, like I said, you don't get that big reward. You don't get that beautiful painting without taking some risks. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to um, hold myself accountable to that and... Um, We'll update here on Double Read Dish of some chances I took and ways I pushed myself out of my comfort zone and that type of thing. So, yeah. So my shout outs this week are in two parts. Uh, the first is a book. Uh, the title is Wherever You Go, There You Are, Mindfulness Meditation in Everyday Life by John Kabat-Zinn. And uh, it's basically a book walking you through being mindful and 
present in the moment. And uh, for me, and I know for a lot of other people out there, sometimes it can be really hard to slow down our thoughts um, and things just move too fast and it tends to create a lot of anxiety. And I've been reading this book probably a little bit every couple of days and I find that when I do attempt the mindfulness exercises that he describes in here and even just reading the words when he describes what mindfulness feels like it tends to help me slow down the thoughts um and uh it was recommended by a really dear friend and i am so grateful for it and i would really recommend it to people who perhaps struggle with thoughts that are rushing by too fast um perhaps some anxiety. I know it won't work for everybody because, um, you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little abstract, you know, talking about meditation and things like that. But if it, if that's something that's interesting for you and you're open to it, I would recommend reading it. Um, and the second one is, uh, it's, uh, organizational, technique called bullet journaling and you can find a video on how to do it it's bulletjournal.com and it's basically just taking a regular old notebook and turning it into a creative planner and uh during break especially i find that it's hard to stay in a mental space where I feel focused and driven and getting all the things done that I want to get done in order to feel artistically fulfilled. You know, at the start of the break, I always feel like, oh man, I'm going to practice so much. I'm going to get so much done. And then once we get to January, I'm always like, why did I waste so much time? And uh, the bullet journal is helping me, you know, just track my goals and making me feel accountable. So if you are looking for an organizational, uh, creative dump kind of um, system, I would really recommend that. So those are my two shout outs. That's really cool. You know, meditation is something that kind of keeps coming back to me from people that I admire as a technique that they utilize. And I've never experimented with it myself, but um, Kristen Wolf Jensen talks about it in the upcoming interview our listeners will hear. Um, so if you're a listener and you practice meditation or if that's been useful for you, why don't you send us an email and tell us about it? And we can talk about that on a future podcast. I'd be really interested in hearing what works for different people. Yeah, I would really be interested in that, too. So please send us an email. My shout out for this week is The Theorist's new album, Thinking is Cool. The Theorists are a bassoon rock band comprised of Jared Durden, who does guitar and lead vocals, Brent Filmer, who's the group's bassoonist, and John Paul Chapman, who is the group's percussionist, and they're based out of Springfield, Missouri. Uh, and they sent me a download of their album recently, and it's a ton of fun. Uh, the bassoon does all sorts of stuff within this group. You'll hear it play bass lines, you'll hear bluesy bassoon solos, you'll hear them do uh, more traditional um, horn parts and various improvisatory types of things. Um, so I encourage our listeners to check them out. Uh, one of the group's passions is this idea of taking away the boundary between what's perceived to be high art and what's perceived to be low art and really passionate about taking the bassoon to new audiences, not in a gimmicky way, but in a way that's really authentic to their sound. So I had a ton of fun checking this band out, and I hope you guys will too. Um, you can check out their music at thetheorists.bandcamp.com, and we'll play a little bit from Thinking is Cool for you in the break. podcast is brought to you in part by Hodge Products. Hodge Products is a predominantly online double reed shop selling reeds, cane, tools, and accessories for oboes and bassoons. 
They are also the designer and manufacturer of Hodge Silk Swabs, Hodge Student Read Cases, and the new owner of Adam Shaper Tips. They have the largest selection of read cases for oboe and bassoon in the U.S. New products for 2017 include Le Rosso Chantant Cane, Museco Tools and Pre-Waxed Thread, and newly produced high-quality Adam Shaper Tips and Handles. They will continue their 25% off sale on all Pisoni products and old production Adam Shaper Tips. All orders over $75 get free shipping. Visit www.hodgeproductsinc.com and be sure to use the coupon code DRDISH to get an extra 15% off your entire order through January 15th for our podcast listeners. I used my coupon code to purchase the Hodge accessory shelf and I love it. I can have my reads and all my read tools there while I practice ready for me to grab. And I've had several people ask me, what is that? Where did you get that? And I tell them, go to hodgeproductsinc.com and use coupon code DRDISH to get your 15% off your order today. So I have to admit that when Kristen Wolf Jensen emailed and said that she was willing to come on Double Read Dish, Galit and I were so excited. We had a bit of a fangirl moment texting back and forth. So excited. There was a lot of virtual squealing. (laughs) A lot of emojis sent back and (laughs) forth. Um, Yeah, I can't say enough great things. Um, I was a big admirer of Kristen's playing and career before this interview, Um, but after hearing her thoughts and seeing how gracious she was sharing her time and her experiences with us, I just am even that much more of a fan of hers. I know that our listeners are going to get so much from this interview. Uh, I know both of us listened to it several times uh, in the editing process just because we were so inspired by her words and um, the things that she shared with us. So we hope that you will very much enjoy this interview with Kristen Wolf Jensen. I am so thrilled to welcome Kristen Wolf Jensen to the podcast, who really needs no introduction. Uh, She teaches bassoon at University of Texas at Austin and has an illustrious performing career. Uh, Kristen, welcome to Double Read Dish. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners and maybe tell us uh, a little bit about your um, training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I think it's great what you two are doing. Um, A lot of fun, your podcast that I've listened to so far. So as you said, I teach at the University of Texas at Austin, and I've been doing so for 21 and a half years, very happily. I love my job, love my students, my colleagues. Um, Prior to that, I taught at the University of North Texas for two years as an assistant professor. And while I was there, I did a lot of freelance work in the Dallas area. And prior to that, I was a lecturer of bassoon, full-time job at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and principal bassoonist of the Las Vegas Symphony. Um, So that was a two-year position that I held before going on to a tenure track in North Texas and then UT. Um, And I got that job straight out of my master's degree. So I was a really young college teacher, um, had a lot to learn, very bright-eyed and passionate about everything I was doing. But uh, really, it was a a stressful two years as I got my feet on in the profession. My master's degree was at Juilliard, where I studied with Stephen Maxson, a wonderful teacher who had been in the Metropolitan Opera for 40 years. And before that, I went to Oberlin for my undergraduate, where I double majored in music education and performance. I have always had an interest and passion for teaching, so it was really important to me to study pedagogy and all the things that go with a music ed degree. Meanwhile, working my butt off as a bassoonist many hours in the practice room as well. I, at that point, had very strong aspirations as a performer, too, so it was productive to do both at that point. And my teachers at Oberlin, this is kind of interesting, I had four of them in my four years. So it was a bit of a circus, but wonderful in many ways. 
um, I, my freshman year, Kenneth Moore was there and he had been teaching at Oberlin for 25 years. He took a sabbatical my second semester and Eric Arbiter from the Houston Symphony filled in for a semester. Ken Moore came back my sophomore year and then retired. And Chuck Ellery from the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra came in for a year and taught and was wonderful and wanted to go back to the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra and so Oberlin hired Bill Winstead to come in for a year commuting from the Cincinnati Symphony at that point. So I had those four wonderful teachers um, at Oberlin, which was a great journey. Uh, odd to not have one person kind of following my uh, progress in, in that important developmental time, but so many great ideas put in my head that did take a few years to kind of um, put together and make, make my own, but um, that was wonderful. And prior to Oberlin, I um, was a high school student in Connecticut, grew up in Storms, Connecticut, where I guess it was middle of my freshman year, I started to get serious about bassoon and actually got a teacher. I, at that point, had not had a regular teacher. My band director in middle school started me on bassoon and he was a violinist, so I had all kinds of really horrible habits as he just sort of put the instrument in my hands and, you know, some of my fingerings, like the E flat and the, the middle range, I was using the C sharp key and the first two fingers, you know, some of those fingerings <laughs> can be really um, raunchy, but that's all I knew and uh, got me through a couple of years till I got a real teacher. Um, so freshman year, I started studying with Lou Lazzarini of the Hartford Symphony and um, he was a great inspiration to me and I uh, at that point what prompted me to take lessons was that I had taken an audition for the Greater Hartford Youth Orchestra I think in January of my freshman year and I took my little Rubank elementary method book and played a simple little etude that had a range of an octave or something and the conductor said to me ah, uh, we really need bassoons, kid. I, I don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a, a shot because we really need bassoons. <laughs> um, you got a long way to go. You ready to work really hard and learn Tchaikovsky's Fifth Symphony? And I, I looked at him, <laughs> yes, I really want to do this. I really want to do this. And so he hooked me up with a teacher. And that kind of was what launched me into the realm of being a serious musician. Um, that I all of a sudden had some serious goals and a teacher to guide me. And you know, I sat through my first rehearsals of Tchaikovsky's Fifth um, at age 14, just being completely lost. I didn't read tenor cleft, the conductor singing the bassoon solo, saying, come on, bassoon, play something. Um, so, <laughs> but it was a quick learning curve. And I think I, I actually played fairly well at the concert uh, several months later. So, um, that was a real uh, fire in my belly to kind of uh, launch my um, passion for, for bassoon and my, my self-discipline to be goal-oriented. Working backward from there, I took up bassoon in seventh grade, um, and that was after a bunch of experimentation with other instruments. My parents very <laughs> generously offered me piano lessons when I was seven, and I was a typical kid who practice like 15 minutes the day of my lesson right before it and that was it <laughs> so um after a year of doing that and not getting much out of it uh, my parents decided to let me off the hook with that and uh, so eventually I came around to taking recorders at my school in fourth and fifth grade and around fifth grade I, I started to think that was really cool and I started to take recorder really seriously and would make my friends stay after school and play recorder quartets with me. Um, I thought that was just like the funnest thing to do. And I still love chamber music. You know, the rest is history with the bassoon. And that's so interesting, your story about having so many teachers uh, during your time at Oberlin. I wonder if during the course of your student life or even as a professional, if anyone special emerged as a mentor who particularly encouraged you in embarking on your professional life? Well, I would hate to play favorites in um, recalling 
my many amazing mentors, uh, I mentioned most of my bassoon teachers. Um, another one would be Larry Ratcliffe, conductor. Um, he came to Oberlin my sophomore year as the wind ensemble conductor. And by my senior year, he was getting into the orchestral world. And of course, now he's uh, conducting the Rice University Orchestra, as well as several professional ones around the country. But I, he was an amazing influence on me in many ways. Uh, he had the unique talent of being able to truly teach from the podium, which I admire. It, it seems to be a rare thing in, in conductors. And so I really appreciated the level of discipline he demanded of the ensemble and yet brought an incredible sense of joy in the process of music making to rehearsals and concerts. And uh, it, it was always an inspiring journey to be in a rehearsal with him, um, the detail he was able to get out of students um, in terms of phrasing and style and, and pitch. So I very often come back to him uh, as I had seven major bassoon teachers in my 10 years of studying bassoon. I had him for actually three years and many hours a week in rehearsals. So um, I'd like to thank him. And uh, of course, my, my very supportive late parents for allowing me to pursue my passions. And uh, there's so many people who have touched my life along the way. I'm very grateful. You mentioned Tchaikovsky, uh, your your experience in youth orchestra with Tchaikovsky Five being a really formative moment for you. And I was I was wondering if you had like an aha moment where you decided to pursue music professionally, or if it was just something that you just knew you were going to do all along the way. I think I had a sense pretty early on, as I mentioned. Even in fifth grade, I was making my friends stay after school and play recorder quartets with me. And I remember just the passion at that point. Um, and at that point, I wanted to be a middle school music teacher. That's what I had role models um, for at that point. And so just the specific areas uh, in which I would focus are what evolved through the years. But I had a passion early on for both teaching and music, and it, um, I guess by seventh grade, I would, thought it would probably be bassoon, um, although, of course, I was wide-eyed and didn't really realize what that was going to take at that point. One of your projects that has resonated really strongly with me is your method book, Music and the Bassoon. Like a lot of people, for me, growing up, private lessons were not an option. My family just couldn't afford them. And I know for some people, an issue of proximity to a teacher is an issue. And I look at this resource and I think about what it means, not only for the music education community as a whole, but particularly for those of us who had to figure it out on our own for a while at first. And I really wish I had been around when young Jackie was, you know, also playing C-sharp key and one and two for her E-flat fingering. Um, and I wonder if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about this project and also why in particular it was important for you to make it available online for free. Yes, thank you. I started working on Music in the Bassoon, although it didn't have a title yet. When I was first beginning at UT, I had very optimistic views of uh, revolutionizing how bassoon would be taught in the world, I guess. And so I, I wrote a method book, hand wrote a bunch of exercises and transcribed folk songs because I very much believed and still do that singing is the most natural form of human musical expression. And if we can tap into that as instrumentalists, then um, we can be more expressive and produce a beautiful sound. So, that I started probably 1996 and had put together maybe a 200-page um, physical method book um, with instructions and descriptions of how to form an embouchure and fingering charts and all kinds of things and wanted to get this out to the world. I approached several publishers, 
think Southern Music and a couple others. And they all said, we, we like your work, but this is going to cost us more money than we can get back if we actually reproduce this. So we can't do it. So my, my method book sat around for several years. And then as I saw the internet developing, I thought, well, I've got all these ideas I want to get out to the world. Why don't I just put it up there? And even better than written descriptions on how to form an embouchure would be videos of me showing it and talking about it and people hearing um, the influence that uh, different formations of an embouchure, for instance, can have or um, different um, influences that a certain kind of articulation can have and, and so forth. So that was just a really cool medium to be able to uh, get my ideas out there in terms of the progressive method itself of going from very basic, simple beginner exercises, uh, something I gave a lot of thought to was, then what do you do next? What's the next thing that's going to help develop skills in the most logical way so that students build a foundation that's really solid? So um, thankfully, UT at the time, I think this was 2007 or so, had some grants to help people get their, help professors get their um, ideas into technological forms. So I wrote the proposal. And so UT, thankfully, provided me with some well-trained students who were, uh, they did the, the filming and knew how to capture a decent sound quality on my videos and audio examples and put all of my handwritten um, staff paper old-fashioned uh, musical examples into finale and formatted it. Uh, one of those helpers is Nathan Cook, who is now Professor Bassoon at uh, Sam Houston State University. So I continue to call Nathan and say, will you help me with this technological challenge? Um, so it's, uh, <laughs> anyway, I'm very grateful to him for helping to make this possible to put music and music up there. And I hope it's I, I think there's still factions of the population that don't know about it. I'm not quite sure how to get word out that it's there as a resource and free for everybody. But um, I think there are some bassoonists and band programs using it, which makes me really happy. That's a really amazing gift. One of the many no notable things that you've done is found the Meg Quigley-Vivaldi Competition and Bassoon Symposium with Nicolasa Custer. Can you talk to us about what inspired you to start it and what you hope it brings to the bassoon community? Sure. Nick Custer is a constant inspiration to me. Thanks, Nick, for being my friend and partner in crime and, and Meg Quigley and several other endeavors. She and I were at the IDRS conference in Buenos Aires in the year 2000. We had met at Oberlin as students. I was a senior. She was a freshman. She wasn't even a music major yet, so I was assigned to be her teacher, <laughs> remarkably, um, for that one year. And uh, so we got to know each other that way. And then I graduated. We went on our merry ways. And then, I guess, 11 years later, we connected at this IDRS convention. And she and I had both, at some point, submitted recordings for the Jalay Fox competition premier double read competition worldwide and and not been accepted and I think that year we were looking at the roster of the five finalists and they were all men and they were mostly European and we thought what is the disconnect here how can we get um, more women rising to the top of our field we started looking at some statistics that of 72 or so major orchestras in our country I think only five positions were, were filled, uh, five principal bassoon positions by women. So what can we do about this? Music schools are filled with female bassoonists. So um, how can we help them get to that top level where they can compete for jobs and prizes and competitions? So this kind of cogitated for both of us for several years. Um, Nick, was in contact with some very generous people who loved Vivaldi, loved women's issues, 
loved the bassoon. And so all of a sudden we had this financial backing to make something happen. And I guess it was around 2003 that this came together. And so we really got serious about, all right, how are we going to do this? Um, what if we create a, an early competitive experience for young women where they are able to um, set goals, learn repertoire, record it at a very fine level, and have this incentive of really um, lucrative <laughs> prize money at the end of it. And so this is kind of how it all got started, and it's been a really wonderful thing, we think. The first competition was in 2005 in Austin, Texas, my hometown. I was hosting the IDRS conference that year and thought, okay, we want to make a splash with this competition. Let's tack it on to the beginning of this conference. Hopefully we can use some of the famous people coming in as judges, which we did, and perhaps um, the winner can have a performance at the conference and we'll get word out about our mission and so forth. So that was a great start. And we had another competition at the next IDRS in Ithaca in 2007. Then we waited I think two and a half years, um, and thanks to George Sakakini and the dean at Oberlin at the time, we were able to, with our third competition, put together a symposium along with it, which was our goal all along was to enhance the competition with coaching of stage presence and um, how to deal with performance anxiety. So we had um, Feldenkrais classes and performances by our world-class judges that we had brought in. Um, so it was whole, a whole event uh, and very much designed for a supportive atmosphere. Granted, competition is part of it, especially for the young women who are there to compete for prizes, but um, it was important to Nick and me all along that we cultivate a, an attitude of we really are all in this together and all ships rise with the tide <clears throat> so let's learn from each other let's support each other and praise each other for what we all have to offer and bring to the table so since then we've had several more symposia and competitions 2012 at uh, nick's home institution university of the pacific and 2014 I co-hosted again with Ben Kamens at the Round Top Music Festival here in Texas. And 2016 was at the Colburn School. Thank you, Richard Bean, for hosting that one. So we're uh, we just continue to evolve and look at what influence it is having. And many of our winners have gone on to get excellent jobs. And not just the winners, but the participants. We bring, at this point, 10 semifinalists to the symposium to be a, a part of that process at the symposium. One really cool thing about our last one at Colburn was one of their acting teachers, Deb Devine, was in on the first day and a half, I think, the 10 semifinalists had maybe four or five sessions with her cultivating in very creative ways. You know, we did a lot of um, just breaking the ice kinds of games at the beginning um, and then eventually advanced to, okay, you're practicing your, your speech for the competition in front of each other and receiving coaching on that. Um, so it's, it's a really rewarding endeavor to be a part of. Yeah, it's such an admirable uh, project, and I think it's such a great example for those of us in the field and those students embarking on the field that we can achieve so much more by lifting each other up and supporting each other. There is that competition element of it, but that will take care of itself and that we can, like you said, learn a lot from each other. How do you, with all of these things you have going on, achieve work-life balance, and how do you approach self-care? Thank you for asking that. This is something I think a lot about. I do have a 14-year-old daughter and a dedicated husband, and so it's important to me to be a big part of their lives um, while continuing to pursue my other passions of music and teaching. 
I, I think it requires constant evaluation and reevaluation of priorities. And that happens on so many levels of the yearly, okay, what are my performance goals this year? What do I want to do? What do I need to do? What can I say no to because I'm going to take a vacation with my family instead of do that? Um, and it happens on a monthly basis, a daily basis, and an hourly basis of do I go to my daughter's soccer game or do, do I attend the UT wind ensemble concert and hear my students play? Um, so it's constant decision making and trying to keep all these uh, important aspects of my life going. And I, I'm busy and I like being busy and, and that's good. Um, I think it also requires some letting go of things that are important to me um, on both sides. For instance, uh, I had the opportunity to play and teach at the Eastern Music Festival in 2006 through 2008, and I loved it, and it was a great experience for me to play five weeks in an orchestra in a row. Um, but it turned out it was very inconvenient for my whole family to move from Texas to North Carolina for five weeks every summer. And so for the good of the family, I, I gave up that opportunity. Um, and I think there are plenty of familial compromises I've made too of soccer games I've missed or karate belt test um, tests that I've missed for my daughter when I was away traveling. Um, so it's, it's a constant compromise, but just trying to be present in whatever I am doing right now. When I'm with my family, I try to put work on the back burner and fully engage in family activities. And likewise with music and teaching. Um, Self-care is something I'm really into. I actually love to exercise. This is one of my passions, too. So I make sure that I'm doing something active several times a week. I grew up as a competitive swimmer. So this is something I go back to. My neighborhood has a beautiful Olympic-sized pool, heated, outdoors. Uh, so even in the winter starting to get cold here I'll get in the pool and uh, it's just a really blissful activity for me to be moving through water I just love that um and on days when, when I can't get to the pool I'm doing videos in my living room of it could be yoga or Julian Michaels kickboxing and abs or um, <laughs> Pilates I just love that stuff um staying in shape which I think is important for us wind players to keep our use of oxygen um, efficient and keep blood flowing through all of our muscles so that embouchures and hands and fingers are um, in good shape when we need them for our instruments. Um, and there's massage. It's expensive, but I try to do that once a month or so. Um, something I've gotten into recently, which I'm a big believer in, is meditation. The Headspace app has been a, a good friend of mine for the over a year now and so I pretty much every day make 15 minutes first thing in the morning to work through some of the units in this headspace app the first 10 days are free and then you pay like a monthly fee which is pretty minimal considering how I really think it's given me a lot of perspective on everything I do in terms of balancing home and work and dealing with performance anxiety figuring out priorities for today and for the long term. So I highly recommend that. I'm also an avid user of a foam roller and a lacrosse ball. I've got these things sitting all over my house and at my studio. They're cheap and convenient ways to employ the benefits of massage. They can get into the muscles and break up the adhesions that form due to tension and or repetitive use. Last but not least on my laundry list of self-care activities is the Alexander Technique, which it's really uh, freed up how I move and increased my awareness of when I'm not using my body efficiently. I've been taking lessons on and off for about 11 years now, and uh, without the consistent attention, not only to how I play the bassoon, but how I sit at a computer or walk down the street, I think I might have been tied up in irreversible knots by now. 
So I, I think it's essential for all of us instrumentalists to practice some sort of self-care throughout our careers and to find something that you like to do and will be motivated to keep doing, um, to keep body and mind in, in healthy states. What advice would you give to people who aspire to have a career like yours? Practice, 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 for sure. Be disciplined in how you're practicing, how you're setting your goals for not only the long term of what you want to be doing as a professional, but looking logically at what it takes step by step to get there. And that means each degree you might seek, each year within your education, and then down to each hour in the practice room of being really goal-oriented what am I going to achieve? How am I going to be better at music and my control of the instrument in one hour? What's the most efficient way to get there? And that's something I talk a lot about with my students is how to practice. And that means often turning off your cell phone and you're just out of touch with Facebook and Snapchat and email for that hour. You need to be fully engaged in pursuing excellence and, and beauty in the music making. Um, so there's certainly a, a discipline involved, but never lose sight of the privilege it is to have beauty and, um, and art at the center of your pursuit daily. Um, we are so lucky, we musicians, to uh, have the time to spend in a practice room and um, experience joy on a regular basis through making music. And so I think it's that gratitude and that passion that are, are going to keep you going through the disciplined aspect of what we do. And I'd say be as well-rounded as you can as well. In some ways, I feel like that's um, an area I missed out on and in my own college years, I was so determined to practice every free minute I had that maybe I would have benefited from going to an art museum once in a while or even just taking time out to talk to friends once in a while. So it comes back to that constant uh, evaluation of, of your priorities and, and keeping a balance in life. Um, and I think it, I hear so many of my prospective students, for instance, when I ask them what their goals are. 95% of them say, I really want to play in a full-time orchestra. That just seems like the best gig ever. And it is an amazing uh, life for those who are fortunate to, to make it. Um, but I, it's not the only thing. And in, in most of our musical lives, we end up doing a lot of different endeavors within music. We end up teaching or creating a method book or many people endeavor to create their own chamber music group, sponsor a music series, take educational concerts into schools where maybe in communities where kids aren't getting a lot of music or a lot of um, varied education. Um, so I, my advice to the youngsters out there would be to keep an open mind about what the possibilities are in your career and make sure that any opportunity that comes your way, you do treat it as an opportunity and that you create your own opportunities um, throughout your career. Um, so there's, there needs to be a certain resourcefulness along with um, becoming a serious musician. Can you describe your approach to read making, your routines or habits, and what advice can you give us as continually improving read makers? Sure. My approach to read making is one of constant evolution, of constant experimentation, and constant attitude monitoring. I think we've all been in that place where reads are getting us down, not only the labor it requires us to put in, but also the inconsistency in uh, how it feels and sounds to play our instruments. So I must say I've, I've learned a lot from my students. I am not a natural 
tool user or um, craft person. So I, in my early career and as a student, made a bunch of reads and some of them worked and some didn't. And I just kept making them and they looked horrible. <laughs> but when it, my read making blossomed the most was when I started teaching and had to explain things to my students and had to fix their reads. I'm sure I've ruined a few through the years, but hopefully mostly improved them. Um, so, and I've been maybe more than a lot of American bassoonists, since my passion is actually playing music, I'm not, I'm more hesitant to spend the time gouging and profiling and shaping. So sometimes I buy cane that's already had that done to it and throw them together. Sometimes I'll even buy ready-made blanks. Um, I know that's a matter of pride and maybe there are um, bassoonists out there who think I'm somehow <laughs> an imposter by, by um, doing that sometimes, but I think we all have to find our own relationship with reads and our strengths and weaknesses and how much time and effort we're, we're willing to put in. Um, there's going to be a lot of time and effort regardless because we need uh, a good product to play so it doesn't hinder our next performance. Would you uh, share with us a favorite memory of a past performance and what are some of your favorite pieces to play? It can be solo, chamber, orchestral, whatever you want to share. Sure. Um, it's hard to pick a favorite performance. There's so many, but one that comes to mind is playing Appalachian Spring by Copeland at the University of Texas in 1989, which was my senior year at the Oberlin Conservatory. So this is before I ever thought I'd be moving to Texas or teaching at UT. Um, the Oberlin New Music Ensemble toured to Texas. UT was hosting the College Band Directors Association conference. And Larry Ratcliffe was conducting us. And it was one of those things where we met during January, which is Oberlin's winter term in between semesters. And from the first rehearsal, there was a really special vibe amongst the students and our conductor. Everyone was well prepared. Everyone was passionate about playing this piece. And we could go to such deep levels with this piece because of that and because of everybody's openness to exploring the music making process. So we all traveled from Oberlin to Texas and gave this performance, which is now in a place where I've worked for 22 years. So it's, there's some serendipity involved here too. But um, it was really one of those magical moments, which here many, many years later, I'm recalling and my peers still remember and even audience members will come up to me and say, do you remember that 1989 Appalachian Spring um, performance? Mm -hmm. So um, it was one of those things where it's, it's musically special, but it's also interpersonally special where you really feel connected with um, the people with whom you're making music. And um, I've been very lucky to have many such instances since, um, but that's cool to recall that one from so many years ago. It goes without saying that anyone who does music has to struggle with certain things. For some of us, it's imposter syndrome, and for some of us, it's performance anxiety. And I wonder if you could share with us some advice that maybe you give to your students or that you've employed yourself in overcoming these um, mental types of things musically. I think the first thing we can all do in dealing with imposter syndrome and performance anxiety, and I think those are closely related, is to accept them as natural symptoms of, of what we're trying to do. We are vulnerable as artists. Um, our passion and our ego and often our livelihoods are wrapped up and intertwined in a really complicated way. So it's no wonder that um, many of us feel anxiety. And I still deal with this. I coach my students on it. Um, I think we have to accept that it's going to be a constant ebb and flow of, of confidence and, and self-doubt. It goes both ways. And that ebb and flow can be minute to minute 
as we think we sound great in the practice room and then something goes wrong. And it, it can be in the form of larger, we're on a roll kind of periods in our life or we're in a slump for several months or even years. So that's just par for the course, I think, for any kind of artist. Um, and I've personally tried many um, approaches to dealing with it and and recommend such things to my students. And I mentioned the Headspace meditation app or any kind of um, thoughtful, mindful activity, I think is really invaluable. Um, it employs deep breathing, which has been scientifically proven to calm the mind, ground our, our thoughts, slow down our heart rate, all those things that can go haywire when thinking about getting on stage or actually on stage. Um, I think every artist at some point in their life should seek some counseling and get advice on practical ways of dealing with these things. There's some great resources out there. The Bulletproof Musician blog, Nila Kageyama's weekly email that he sends out. If you just sub subscribe to his blog, I think are fabulous. They're, he sends out an article on something you can read in five or 10 minutes about performance anxiety and efficient practicing every aspect of, of what we do. So I think that's wonderful. They're great books. Don Green's performance success, audition success, and the centering techniques that he presents in those books are wonderful. Um, so I think it's it's not something you can expect to arrive at. And now I'm never going to be nervous again. Uh, maybe I used to think that, but um, it really is an ongoing quest to to manage the mind and body as we uh, pursue something that's so important to us. What are some of your upcoming performances and uh, where would you like to direct our listeners to uh, find some of the things that you're doing on the internet? Well, upcoming performances, I will be a guest artist at Double Read Day at Northwestern Louisiana State University in January and in April, I'm going to University of Missouri, Kansas City to do their Double Read Day. So I'll be performing and getting master classes. I love that, meeting new students and Double Read colleagues in the field. I also have a number of performances with the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra in Houston, which has been a real fun and inspiring endeavor for me. I was in on the opening season in 2005. The whole orchestra was started by a classmate of mine at Juilliard, a Nobel player, Alicia Lawyer, and I just admire so much her vision for this group and the joyful um, collaborative spirit she brings to the musicians and the audiences. Um, so I get to play with them several times this spring. And those are the main things I have coming up, which uh, back to work-life balance, that's enough for me at this sort of midpoint in my career right now. I'm, um, I find those things very stimulating and fulfilling, and yet I don't feel like I need to be performing something every single week. So I'm looking forward to those. I would encourage listeners to look at Music in the Bassoon. There are videos all over it in terms of um, how to get your low notes to speak, how to um, do some breathing exercises, all kinds of pedagogical tips on that website. And then separately, I have my UT Bassoon Studio website, which has a, a lot of resources uh, in terms of tonguing exercises. Uh, it has my sequence of syllabi from first semester freshmen through doctoral students, which I've um, devised a basic skills sequence of scales and long tones and rhythm exercises that get progressively harder, hopefully building a really strong foundation every step of the way. Um, I have several solo recordings out there. Hope you'll listen to shadings and um, parables and reflections. That's all music by Birko Bali. Sort of new CDs out called Dot, Dot, Dot and Kristen Wolf Jensen, which was a really cool project where I got to collaborate with my former students. And so we're doing bassoon duets and trios, um, several of them. 
my students who are now in the field. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on. It's been such a treat for us to have you, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy listening to your thoughts so much. So we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You two are awesome, and I think it's great how you're sharing all of your information and ideas with the world and in, in such a generous, fun spirit. So thanks for your contribution. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes our first episode of 2017. Please tune in on January 15th for our second Oboe guest and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and SoundCloud and subscribe and rate and review on iTunes. You can send us an email at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome your feedback. Thank you to our sponsors and thank you to you for listening.